Good evening, church. Will you bow for a word of prayer with me today? Let's pray. Lord, Father, thank you for today. Thank you for another opportunity to be in your house. Thank you for each one that's gathered here tonight. I just pray that uh, we've already sang many wonderful songs, Lord, that remind us of how, how good you've been, how great you are, how amazing your grace is, Lord, that you've shown us, and how um, blessed we are to be assured by your Holy Spirit of the salvation that we have only in Christ. So I just pray you would be honored and glorified as we continue Lord, to look at your word, I pray we would hear from you tonight, that we would open our ears and our hearts, Lord, uh, just to receive what you would have for us tonight, Father. Bless each person that's present, each one that may be watching online. We continue to lift up our pastor as he's um, recovering from surgery. Pray he can be back with us soon. Uh, Be with him and Pat. We just thank you and we praise you in all that you do. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Well, we've had the hymn book tonight. I think the only thing missing was an out-of-tune, upright piano that was over in the corner somewhere that we could, that could be banged out. It reminded me of the, the church I grew up in um, had, a, uh, had one piano player, one. We were lucky to have that one. Her name was Wanda. Her husband, Bill, was the song leader. And if for whatever reason Wanda wasn't there, um, Bill would just say, you know, church tonight or this morning, whenever it was, we're singing a cappella. And so that's what we did tonight. We sung a cappella. So that was, that was fun. Um, I'm going to be looking at Matthew 6 this evening. Matthew 6, um, looking at specifically at verses 5 through 8, 5 through 8, and um, talking about how you ought to pray. There's no handout tonight, so if you're looking for that, there isn't one. And uh, so, uh, so just, I only have three points this evening, so just follow along with me and, and take note if you want. But uh, we're looking at how you ought to pray. And uh, when I first started studying this passage in, in preparation for tonight, I thought maybe we could get through verse 15, but the more I dug into verses 5 through 8, the more I came to realize that we would have to be here another hour if I was going to dig into the rest of this passage with you all tonight. So, um, to, to spare us that, um, we're just going to stop at 8, so maybe I'll get an opportunity to do 9 through 15 one of these nights. But anyway... Uh, Matthew 6, 5 through 8. So I'm going to read this and then we're going, to, we're going to dive into that. So if you have your copy of God's Word, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And that's the reading of God's Word tonight. Uh, In 2018, Al Mohler, who is the um, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, of, of which I graduated from, he wrote a, a small book on the Lord's Prayer, and it was entitled, uh, I love the title of the book, it was entitled, The Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down. And in it, he quotes another scholar as saying that the evangelical church is slowly but surely giving up on prayer. Now, I hope that's not true, but that comes from a man who knows a lot more about churches than I do. He said, the evangelical church is slowly but surely giving up on prayer. And in the book, He makes a connection between desperation and prayer. 
He makes a connection between desperation and prayer. And he says, some of us lack the desperation most Christians have experienced throughout church history. Desperation leads to prayer. He then makes this general observation about prayer. Dr. Moeller does. Many Christians simply do not know how to pray. And I've certainly felt that way in my life, and maybe you have too in yours. It's not, the, it's not the case of not knowing what to pray. We all get in those moments sometimes, and we'll talk about that tonight. But how many Christians know how to pray? And this was obviously a struggle in Jesus' day as well. Many, it seemed, were uh, misled or confused about how they should pray, particularly when, they, uh, when the disciples observed Jesus praying. They're like, Lord, teach us to pray like you. Um, and so they, what the people often heard were these lofty prayers of the Pharisees and the church leaders, and they probably thought to themselves, why, why can't I pray like that? There must be something wrong in my life spiritually that means I can't pray the way that these Pharisees pray. And in these few verses that we're looking at tonight, Jesus is going to teach us about prayer. And when Jesus teaches us about prayer, we should probably listen to that because that's basically God saying to us, hey, this is how you should talk to me. This is how you should talk to me. And I would dare say that many in here either have struggled or maybe even are now struggling with prayer. It's a very important issue. Um, it's, it's one of the key disciplines of the Christian life. Uh, the failure of a Christian to pray, not again, not knowing not what to pray. Many times we get, kind of get stumped. We just, we just don't know. We're in, a, we're in a pinch. We're down. And we don't know what to say to the Lord in, in certain moments. But certainly the failure of a Christian to pray at all is disobedience. And the God of the universe has revealed himself to us. That's why we have his word. He's shown us who he is both in nature, both in his word and through the face of Jesus Christ. And he desires that we know him. He desires that we speak to him. And he loves making himself known to us. And he invites us into fellowship with him in prayer. And you don't have to look any further than the Garden of Eden in your Bibles, those first few chapters of the Bible, and you'll see that God made man to fellowship with him. God made man to talk with him, to walk with him. And so, a neglect of prayer is a neglect of fellowship with God. Uh, Matthew Henry, <clears throat> which I'm sure many of you have his, his commentaries or have read them, he once said, You may as soon find a living man that does not breathe as a living Christian that does not pray. And so, the context of this passage, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus had already spoken about a lot of controversial issues up to this point. The Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter 5. It's also included in Luke, but Matthew's gospel gives us a, a much <clears throat> bigger picture of the Sermon on the Mount. So he already talked about issues in chapter 5, such as murder and adultery and divorce and how to love your enemies. And then he begins to instruct the people on prayer. Um, and he's going to instruct them on how not to pray by giving some examples of that. He's going to instruct them on how to pray. And what I'm not going to get to tonight, verses 9 through um, uh, about 13 or 14, 9 through, yeah, 9 through 13, he gives a model prayer, what we call often call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. And so, but tonight we're just going to examine some of what Jesus says to not do and to do. And so first I want us to think about, first point I want us to think about, he does address praying in public, which is not something that we think about very often, but Jesus has some things to say about how we ought to Pray corporately. So praying. So the first point, pray honestly in public. Pray honestly 
and public. And this comes from verse 5. I do not have a cold, but it is pollen season, and my throat just stays pretty much constantly scratchy. So that's why I have the water up here. So pray honestly in public. One thing that should be of note here is that if Jesus, if teaching his people how to pray, it's assumed that as followers of Jesus, we are indeed to pray. Jesus is teaching us how to do it because this is something that we should do often. And it's not an optional thing for us. Jesus expects us to pray. He wants us to know how, and he instructs us on this. But first... He wants us to know a little bit about something about how not to pray. And this actually in his instruction on how not to pray gives us a lot of insight on what Jesus does expect from public corporate prayer. And what should be clear from this verse, from verse 5, is that the one way Jesus told us not to pray is hypocritically. So let's examine that word for a minute. I know some of you have heard it before. But in the Greek, the word hypocrite or hypocritically is a noun that actually refers to an actor or a stage player playing a part, usually wearing a mask. In other words, they're a pretender. They're pretending to be somebody that they're not. They're acting. They're pretending. They're impersonating someone, and they're playing a part. So what Jesus is saying here is don't don't be a pretender in your prayer life. Don't play a part or act like you're wearing a mask. So when these hypocrites stood in the synagogue or in public places to pray and to offer a prayer... They did it to be seen by people and to be admired for many things. Maybe their, their flowing speech, their amazing speech, uh, their emotion that they put into prayer, the dramatic actions or hand movements that they put into it. They certainly appeared to be talking to God. But according to Jesus, they were wearing a mask. They were hypocrites. They were pretenders. They were playing a part, putting on a play. And the synagogue was their stage. And... They were the main protagonist in the play. In other words, it was all about them. They were the actor. They were the main actor. Center stage. They were not communing with God. They were putting on an act to gain the admiration of people. And according to Jesus, that's the only reward that they got. The admiration of people. God was not involved at all in that type of prayer. Which, by the way, if our prayer does not center on God, if we don't recognize who we're talking to, then there is no point. And praying if it is not centered on the person of God. So what's the main message here for us from verse 5? Well, when it comes to prayer, I think one of the things Jesus is certainly teaching us is don't pretend to be what you're not. Don't pretend to be what you are not. So I think this leads us to ask two very important questions. One, are we genuine when we pray? In context, Jesus is asking, are we genuine when we pray in public? And then number two, do, you use the, do we use the same language in private that we do in public? In other words, when you examine how you pray in public, and there may be many instances that we, there may be offering public prayer. Many of you pray with your family, at a family gathering, at a fellowship, and I'll cover some of that here in a minute. But we have to ask ourselves, if we're offering a prayer, if you get the opportunity to offer a prayer in public, are you using the same language that you would use in private? Are you speaking The same way. In other words, are you still genuinely yourself? Or do you speak to God differently when you're when other people are listening in? Most of the time when I when I am praying in public, it's for a very specific reason. It could be in church, you know, blessing the Lord's Supper, done that a few times, blessing a group fellowship or a meal, um, or to begin corporate worship. 
<clears throat> some of you may, again, have family functions that you're often asked to pray at, or you lead your family at home in prayer, or you get an opportunity to pray in Sunday school or a Bible study class. It could be any number of reasons to pray in a group or in public. So what I pray for in public may be different. Of course it is. It's much different than what I would pray for in private. But how I pray and the language I use should be similar. And it's the same for all of us. We should be the same person with the same affection for God in both situations. God should be the focus of all prayers, public or private. And notice that Jesus doesn't overlook the importance of corporate prayer in the life of a believer. He's addressing public prayer because it's something that he knows that his church is going to do quite often in many different contexts. And he cares so much that he instructs us on how to do it. Healthy churches pray honestly together. We pray honestly together. And I'm afraid that in many churches around the country have come to view church the same way that we view spectator sports. People approach coming to church in the same way that they might approach going to the game. Right? They come with the expectation of being moved, of being entertained. But even spectator sports right, need participation from the crowd. Even spectator sports doesn't just expect fans to come in and sit and do nothing throughout the whole game. Right? They participate in what's going on. The Seattle Seahawks, for instance, are famous for what they call the, the 12th man in the stands. It's the fans creating such a ruckus that it, it, does in, it does involve upsetting the rhythm of the other team that's playing there. And for many years, um, that crowd has given them the upper hand in a lot of home games. And of course, being a native of East Tennessee like I am, I've been to Neyland Stadium a few times in my life. How many of y'all have been there? Any, no, so maybe just a few Tennessee fans in the room. Well, the rest of y'all just miss out. Um, so I've been to Neyland Stadium a few times in my life. No one goes into Neyland Stadium on a Saturday in the fall just to sit and do nothing, right? They don't go there just to sit and be quiet and just, you know, very calmly watch a football game. No, they're active participants. Neyland would be a very different place without the liveliness of the crowd if it was just silent and a bunch of people just sitting there staring. We don't even do that in front of our TV when we're watching a game, much less when we're with a crowd of people. Yet, yet when many people come to church, they don't come as um, a participant of corporate worship. They don't come with the expectation of engaging corporately with the rest of the saints in the church in worshiping God. We corporately try to arrange what we do in church so that people are encouraged to engage. When we open the hymns tonight, you were encouraged to sing. When I open this word of God to speak to you from it, you're encouraged to participate by, I hope, listening to it, right? As God is speaking to us from His word. We come to engage. We sing. We encourage people to sing. When the word's preached, we engage with it, and we determine how to respond to it. And it's the same with corporate prayer. When a prayer is given publicly, whether it's in the context of a family meal, a gathering, a Bible study, a Sunday school class, the point isn't, to draw attention to the one doing the prayer, but to the one being prayed to. Corporate prayer is instructional in that it sets a model for people as to how prayer should be. Here's how one author puts it. He says, when we pray together, corporately, he's talking about the church, when we pray together, we want to address misconceptions about God, pray for those things that many of us neglect, and show that substantial prayer doesn't have to have or take 
a substantial amount of time. In other words, corporate prayer allows us another means of being taught who God is, and in light of that, confessing areas that we corporately fall short. Corporately, we adore God. We confess areas of struggle and sin. We offer thanks for all of who God is for us in Christ and all that He does for us as His church, as His bride. And we ask Him for what we need and to bless our efforts in sharing the gospel. See, corporate prayer draws the church in towards God so that we can disperse outwardly on mission for God. And that's why it's important that when we do gather and when prayers are offered publicly, that we pray honestly together. And again, that the focus isn't on the person praying, but on who we're praying to so that we might glorify God together. Because corporate prayer, after all, is an act. Corporately, it's an act of worship together. And it's really an aspect of the Christian life that you don't get anywhere outside of the corporate gathering. There is something special when God's people come together and we pray and we center ourselves around God and around His Word and His character and who He is and we earnestly plead with Him and we ask Him for things and we adore Him and we worship Him and we do so in the context of all the things that we do together. Prayer none the least, right? So we, we offer prayer to God corporately. We praise Him. We glorify Him together. And it's an act of worship for God. So that's what Jesus instructs us on corporate prayer. To not be hypocritical. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be a stage actor on a play. So if you ever get the chance to pray corporately in any context, heed the words of Jesus in that. So now we turn to verse 6. Verse 6. Jesus. So now he's going to shift our attention to private devotion. To private prayer. Which most of us can relate more to. In verse 6, he encourages us to pray earnestly in private. Pray earnestly in private. Because he says, when you pray, he's anticipating that you will pray in private. Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. If you look again at verse 6. So again, that we see the phrase, when you pray. Go to a private place, Jesus says, shut the door and talk to God. Talk to the Father. So, in just these two verses, verses 5 and 6, you see that prayer is both a corporate act that is used to encourage and edify and exhort the body of Christ, but it's also a private act. And both are needed in the life of a Christian. Both disciplines are needed in the life of a healthy Christian. Corporate prayer cannot and should not, hear this, and I think Jesus is instructing us on this, corporate prayer should not and cannot be a substitute for private prayer. If the only place you ever pray is when you're in the walls of these church, then you're missing a huge part of fellowship with Jesus. And as much as we may struggle in corporate prayer, many of us may struggle even more so in private prayer. Notice that there's three steps that Jesus mentions here in this verse. Seek out a private place. Seek out the Father in prayer. And know that God sees you and He will reward you. So first, it seems Jesus is commanding us to have a private place of devotion that we go to to commune with Him. And if you think about it, especially those of you who may still have children in the house, this takes a lot of intentionality on our part to seek out a place that's private. It takes a lot of intentionality. You actually have to desire to meet with God in order to seek out a place to meet with Him. So, speaking from personal experience, for myself, I have three kids, ages 10, 8, 4, Um, it's really hard to find a private place. Um, I literally think that sometimes I could 
go to some remote area in Dixon, and there's a lot of them, I know there are, um, dig like a hole, like a thousand feet down into the crust of the earth and like build a concrete bunker that has a special keypad on a locked door that only I know the combination to and probably like, you know, put like a few wild animals um, on guard outside of that door and somehow, some way, my kids would still find me and ruin my peace. Um, I know they would. They would still find me. Because they somehow, they've got this radar. they got a daddy must be alone somewhere and he needs me radar built into them. Um, it's better than the best infrared and heat-seeking technology used by the military. I guarantee it. They should just tap into a few kids to find out where things are. <clears throat> they will find you. They will ruin your peace. And so for me, the only way I can get this done is just to simply wake up before they do. Wake up before they do. And that means I've got to get moving early. And it took a while for that to become a habit in my life. It really did. It took a while. It's so easy just to hit that button and just go back to sleep. Um, I don't succeed at this every day, but it's more habitual now than it ever was. Um, you, you must find not only a private area, but you must find a time that you can devote to being silent and to being alone. You must give that time to God. And according to Jesus, if you do that, God will meet you there. That's, that's the promise. Think about this. This is what Jesus is saying. If you do this, if you seek out a private place and you call out to God from that private place, that God himself will meet you there. That's the second step. So when you go to God in, in private, you don't stay alone. You go in private, but you're not alone. God meets you there. And when it's just you and God, there's no pretense, right? There's no need for a show anymore. There's no need for a show. You might say, well, I never know what to say or what to pray for. And sometimes that's true. <clears throat> but that's why Bible study and prayer go hand in hand. And I don't have this all figured out. I'm still working this out in my own life. But the, here's some tips um, that I've learned along the way, and maybe they help you, and I still need to implement these in my life. I'm speaking to you, but I'm also hearing these myself because I need to implement those. So here's a few tips on how to, knowing how to pray, which, by the way, silence is fine too. I'll come to that in just a minute. Silence is definitely okay. The Bible says sometimes words fail us, and we just, we just don't know. We just, we're just mute before the Lord. We don't know what to say, and that's okay. He still interceded for us because he knows what we need. But I'll get to that in a couple of verses. So here's a few tips. One, when you get in private, you can pray God's word back to him. Right? God's okay with that. God's okay with praying his word back to him, particularly the Psalms. Re reiterating the truths that you encounter in Scripture and thanking God for helping you understand what you just read. Again, prayer and Bible study go hand in hand. The, the reading of the word of God feeds your prayer life. It gives you, it gives you uh, things to pray for, things to thank God for. Things to ask God about. I, don't, I just read this. I don't know what it means. It's too, too beyond me. Lord, help me to understand it. But God invites us to pray His promises back to Him. God's okay if you hold Him to His promises. He doesn't let us down. You can remind Him of things that He said He will do. Pray His promises back to Him. Secondly, you can also ask yourself, what do I need? What do I need? This is Jesus's, we're not going to get to these verses, but when Jesus says that, when he tells us to give us this day our daily bread, when we pray to God for daily bread, another way of phrasing that be, could be, Lord, give me what I need to get through today. Give me what I need today. What do I need to help me get through this moment, this time in my life, today? Daily bread. Sometimes that's, that's what God gives you. He gives you enough for today. What, can, what do I need for today? You could also, if, as Bible study and the reading of God's word is God, and you pick a particular attribute of God, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, 
and adore God for that. Thank Him for who He is. You're not going to read any part of Scripture without learning something about who God is and His character. Thank Him for that attribute. Ask Him to help you understand it more and praise God for that particular attribute. Thank Him for who He is. Of course, confession should be part of our prayer. Confess any known sin. Ask forgiveness. Jesus leads us to do that in His model prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then you can also, you know, ask your family and your friends what you can pray for them about. I'm sure you are in Sunday school classes that maintain a prayer list. Take that before you when you're in prayer. Take your Sunday school class role before you in prayer. Take the list of uh, your names, your family, and your friends who are in need and just present it to God. You don't know what to do for them, but He does. Ask Him about them. Pray for them. When we tell people we're going to pray for them, how about actually going in private and doing it? The key being is that Jesus wants us to be earnest. He's, he's asking us to be earnest. <clears throat> it's not about how you phrase it. It's about who you're talking to. right? It's not about how you phrase it. It's about who you're talking to. Private prayer is a time for you to learn about who God is, but it's also a time for you to learn about yourself, your own blind spots and your own weaknesses. God's going to reveal those things to you as you go to Him. In areas that spiritually need addressing, maybe that's why many of us avoid private prayer time. It's because we know God's going to show up and He's going to show us some things about ourselves that we don't like. But that's what God does, and that's a merciful act on His part to do that in prayer. And lastly... In this particular verse, Jesus says, Be motivated by the fact that God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Whereas the hypocrite prays for the adoration of man, the earnest prayer in private delights in the adoration of God. The main reward here isn't anything material that you're going to receive. It isn't as if you'll open your eyes and there's going to be a huge pile of cash or a Lamborghini in your driveway. No, that's not the reward Jesus is talking about. The rewards you get for going to God and earnestly praying is God Himself. You get the presence of the Lord, His presence and His pleasure in communing with you. God delights to hear the prayers of His people. He delights in meeting with us in a secret place of fellowship in prayer. His pleasure in us and his, as His children, it radiates out to us and it offers us what we need in that moment. God is assuring us as we're pleading with Him, He's comforting us with His presence. As we're asking Him for what we need that day, He's reminding us that he's our, He is our provision. He's our portion. And tell me, church, what greater reward is there than God Himself? What, what could God possibly reward us with that's going to be greater than Him? What a wonderful thing that the God of the universe, He sees you. That's one of the, the key things that Jesus is teaching us here. And your Father who sees in secret, when you go to God in private and you pray, God sees you. When you bow and you pour out your heart to Him, He sees you. That's, a, that's the very definition of what it means to be blessed, right? For God to see you. We are His and He is ours. And that reality becomes very tangible in a unique way in private prayer. I love how Psalm 73, Psalm 73 verses 25 through 28 put it, it, it speaks of this beautifully. The psalmist goes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your 
of all your works. Here, verse 28 again. But for me, there's many that astray, and they will perish. But for me, it is good to be near God. That's what you do in prayer. That's what you do when you privately commune with your Father. You draw, you draw near, and He draws near, and He makes you very much aware of His presence in those moments. And then we finally turn to verses 7 and 8, where Jesus teaches us to pray deliberately in reverence. Pray in reverence. He says, when you pray, He tells us not to heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Jesus says, don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray deliberately in reverence. So in His final instruction before offering the model prayer for us to follow, Jesus zeroes in on our actual words. So He, he, talks, he teach, teaches us first about where to meet Him. right? And then He zeroes in on our actual words. He gives us the instruction to not heap up empty phrases. <clears throat> so let's examine that phrase for just a moment. The Greek word that we translate as the phrase empty phrases or vain repetition. Some of your translations may have the phrase vain repetitions. Don't use vain repetition. <clears throat> it means to stammer or to repeat over and over again. And this could be referring to many things. First, it could be referring to a pagan or a Gentile practice of repeating a refrain over and over again in a pattern formula as if the words and the repetition somehow unlock some power or energy that we can tap into. Um, I think this is definitely in mind since Jesus refers to this being what the Gentiles or the pagans do. It's an idolatrous practice as if using the right words in the right way with the right cadence can somehow unlock something that would otherwise remain hidden. That's not what Jesus is talking about. God doesn't just jump to action because we say the right things in the right way and wrote incantation and recitations do no good in and of themselves. God is not like the gods of the Gentiles. <clears throat> so this could also be referring to the practice of both Jews and Gentiles of saying um, certain phrases as if that phrase itself has power. If you just say the right phrase, that phrase is just going to unlock something. Or if we speak loud enough, we're energetic enough, God's going to hear us. It's exactly what, by the way, Elijah condemned the prophets of Baal for doing. Remember when he, they went up on the Mount, Mount Carmel and they were offering their sacrifices and there was a, it was basically a God contest. Elijah said, call out to your God, I'm going to call out to my God. And the God that responds with fire and consumes the sacrifice is the true God. And Baal was, the prophets of Baal were at it for hours and Elijah was mocking them saying, I don't think you're speaking loud enough. I think your God's asleep. Maybe he went to the bathroom. Right? So we... Uh, he's, Jesus is condemning this practice of thinking if we just say the right things or maybe if we just speak them louder, somehow God's going to hear. It's also a faulty way of thinking about prayer. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on this passage says, God does not regard the quantity but the quality of our service. His favor is not to be bought, as many seem to suppose, by the informal repetition of a number of words. So what, what does this look like for us then? What, is it, what does it mean for us? Well, if we aren't careful, there are certain ways of praying that we think um, <clears throat> where we think that if we say certain things or if we repeat certain phrases, God will hear us more clearly. And we kind of get rote in our prayer life. We, we just kind of get wrapped up into saying the same things over and over again. And if we aren't careful in our prayer life, it becomes lifeless and we end up just saying words out of duty or habit or sometimes we just simply forget who it is we're talking to. Sometimes we have to, <laughs> have to remind my kids, you can't talk to me like that. You can't talk to your mother like that. So sometimes we just simply forget 
who it is we're talking to in prayer. And so question, you know, something you can ask yourself, are your prayers intensely personal or are they vaguely general? Are you praying for things that are intensely personal to you or are they just vaguely general? Are you just offering things, general things to the Lord? Are your prayers often spontaneous or have they gotten rather predictable? Are they expressions of being in deep fellowship with God or do they reflect a spiritual life that's lost its vigor and its satisfaction in God? All of these are important questions to ask ourselves lest we fall into this pattern of what Jesus refers to as vain repetitions and empty phrases. And I don't, what I don't think Jesus is condemning here is persistent prayer. So I don't want you to hear me there. Jesus is not condemning persistent prayer. Sometimes something is heavy on our hearts and we speak to God about it often. Um, that's not the repetition that Jesus is condemning here. As a matter of fact, I think Jesus endorses persistent prayer. If you look in Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus tells the parable of a judge in a city who had no fear of God. That's pretty key to the parable. There's a judge in this city and he has no fear of God. And there's a widow who kept coming to him asking, pleading for justice against the person who was causing her harm. He refused to help over and over again, but she just kept coming back and she kept persisting. And out of frustration and to be rid of this woman that he found annoying, he just granted her request just to be rid of her. <clears throat> and how does Jesus sum up the story? How does he sum up this parable? He says... Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So Jesus was implying that if an unrighteous judge grants justice to a woman he considers a pest, how much more so will God, who is righteous, listen to the persistent prayer of his people whom he has called and in whom he delights? So persistent prayer... Persistent earnesty in our prayers, but do not use empty words or phrases. Persist, but do not use empty phrases. There's a big difference between earnest, persistent prayer that's heartfelt and empty phrases that are heartless. Jesus says that our prayer life doesn't have to be lifeless. You're praying to a God who knows you deeply. He knows you so well that he knows what you will say before you're going to say it. Our God is omnipresent, He's all-knowing, He's well aware of our needs, and He delights in meeting them. Jesus says, God listens. God sees you, and He hears you. Isaiah said in Isaiah 65, 24, He describes God this way. <clears throat> now, I think this is what Jesus has in mind. Before they, This is God speaking. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. In other words we should take comfort in the fact that we cry out to a God who knows us, who sees us, and who hears us. He's not far away. He's not hard of hearing. He's not unknown, but He's known. He's not unfamiliar with our pain and grief, but He's well acquainted with it. He knows what you need, so go to Him. Now, earlier I mentioned that sometimes we don't we don't know what to pray for. We're just, we're silent. We're speechless before the Lord, which is okay. There's many prophets in the Old Testament that were pretty speechless when they were in the presence of God too, right? Sometimes we just get at a loss for words. And sometimes we don't feel worthy of going to the Lord. We're like Isaiah, right? In chapter 6, 
Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm not worthy to be in your presence, let alone to speak to the king while he's sitting on his throne. But God knows us so well that he steps in and he intercedes anyway. Even when we don't know what we need, he does. Romans 8.26 says, this is where God confirms this for us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we are often very weak. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So God acknowledges that sometimes we don't even know what we need. We don't know what to say. We don't know what we need. We're in, we're in, uh, we're in a mess. We think we do. We think we know what we need, but we really don't. So instead of dismissing our prayers, when we come before God and we're speechless and we don't know what to say, instead of dismissing our prayers, God in mercy, He... He intercedes anyway. That's the gift. That's that's the gift of the Spirit. When we come before God and we don't know what to do and we don't know what to say, because you belong to Him and because you've been purchased by the blood of His Son, God in mercy intercedes anyway. If my son, either one of them, the eight-year-old or the four-year-old, if my sons are trying to dig a hole, right, which they do sometimes, and you find them later in the yard, but if they dig a hole, if they're trying to dig a hole, and he comes to me, and he asked me for a hammer. I'm not going to say, you dummy, you can't dig a hole with a hammer. Go away. That's not what I, as a dad, would say to him. I would say, no, hey, bud, that hammer is not going to be very useful for that. All right, let me get you a shovel. God knows that sometimes, which I'm not, Rebecca, don't worry, I'm not helping our sons dig holes in the yard. That's just an illustration for the purpose of a sermon. They probably have dug a few, though. <clears throat> God knows that sometimes we ask for things that we think are going to be helpful, but in reality... They're not a part of His plan for us. And the Spirit intercedes anyway, and He gives us what we need. So, tonight's encouragement is this. Pray deliberately and pray intentionally. Dig deep into God's Word so that you can come to know more about who it is you're praying to. And I think that will change your prayer life. The more we as Christians dig into God's Word, and the deeper we get into the character of God, and the more depth that He reveals to us about who He is and what He's done for us in Christ, that can't help but shape how we pray, and how we speak to the Lord. As deeper we get into salvation and the more we become to understand the lengths that God went to save us and His mercy that still reaches out to us, it will affect your prayer life. It'll change how you speak to God, how often you speak to God, what you speak to Him about. So let Scripture guide you in prayer. Pray honestly, pray earnestly, and pray deliberately. And if words fail, know that He still hears you and He intercedes for us anyway. So to conclude a lesson on prayer, I think it's appropriate that we go to the Lord in prayer tonight. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for all you do for us. We thank you that as the words of Jesus remind us, Lord, we're encouraged about how not to pray, and how we should speak to you both in, in public and in private, Lord. We, uh, we, we often neglect the blessing that it is uh, to speak to you. Um, we take for granted that you're a God who draws near to us and who desires to hear from us, who sees us, who listens. And so I just pray that we would just take heart tonight from your word that as you've reminded us that you desire for us to pray intentionally, you desire for us to pray earnestly and honestly. There's nothing we can hide from you anyway. So there's no point in being dishonest when we stand before you in prayer. So I just pray you would encourage us with these words. Help each of us to be more diligent, to be more faithful in our life of prayer as we call on you. Lord, after all, um, if, if 
you're not hearing and if you're not acting, we're all we're all doomed. So we're grateful that you are there. We're grateful you hear. And we thank you for the mercy that you give us that makes salvation possible, but makes fellowship with you on a daily basis possible. So we thank you. We praise you. Remind us of these things. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you all. Hope you have a blessed rest of the week. See you Sunday.